this is, um, this is an exciting moment um, in the life of our church as we, uh, as we come together uh, to install a new pastor here in our midst. And so what I want to do here um, as, we, uh, as we start off today is to just uh, invite Pastor Kenneth Rush and his lovely wife, Lori, to go ahead and come up on stage with me. Yeah, yeah. Y'all can go ahead and come right here. Haha, <laughs> sorry. I'll make you dance. Let's see, go ahead and stay right here. Yeah. So, um, I know I've had a couple of opportunities to talk about the story of our coming together and our, uh, you know, when I got to meet Pastor Rush for the first time and then Lori. Um, but what we're doing today is kind of bringing multiple months of God and the Holy Spirit doing some work in some of our leadership uh, to bring us to a place where we believed um, that God was saying it, it was uh, in, in our um, uh, in, inside of our story as it unfolds, uh, a part of it would overlap with the Rush family and to bring um, them into our congregation. Um, I'm going to go ahead and have you all stand just a little bit on the inside of this blue tape. You all don't know that. That's movie magic right there. <laughs> but they can't see you if you're on the other side of it, so you're good right there. But I just wanted to kind of give you a, just when we bring someone into our midst and install them as a pastor, just what exactly is it that we're doing? And I just wanted to explain a little bit of that to you today. At Common Ground Northeast, we believe that God has ordained the priesthood of all believers, that all who are called to the kingdom of God are ministers in some way, shape, or form that God has gifted you in a way that makes that clear. But still there is some who are, uh, are, are recognized inside of scripture as leaders, even in the midst of those today. And we're going to talk about that today. There are those who carry the burden of using their gifts specifically in the context of a congregation here. I'm going to throw my glasses on. I've been trying to avoid it, but I cannot. Um, and so in, inside of this, uh, this separateness, there's an inclusion where everyone is called, but still distinction in the midst of that, that all are called to equip, but some are called, sorry, all are called to participate, some are called to equip the body of believers in a local expression at church. So Ken, in his time in ministry, has faithfully served the kingdom of God. Ken was ordained in 2000 in the Church of God in Christ in June of 2000. Ken has been in ministry for 22 years. We say 15, I always want to say 14, but it's been 15 years at the Healing Place Church. He's got experience outside of that, uh, and, and he uh, and his wife, uh, Lori, have been ministering side by side together in those contexts. Here, he is going to serve us as our associate pastor, and some of the things that he will be operating in is the adult spiritual formation here at our church. He is going to take on men's, women's, the marriage ministry that we have going on here, come alongside me in preaching and teaching and helping us um, to broaden our perspectives in that. He is working towards establishing a better engagement with the community here, with our church and those who are around us inside of our neighborhoods and nations and next generation. Ken is committed to the work of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, to be on mission and, and to agree with our vision and the values of Common Ground Northeast. And I want to read that to you, that our vision is to invite all people, regardless of age, ethnicity, and background, to be formed into the image of Jesus in order that we might love our neighbors here in Indianapolis and throughout the world. He comes in the midst of it with a calling of his own to multi-ethnic and, in, and multicultural engagement and a ministry of reconciliation that St. Paul draws us to as he says it in 
or in 2 Corinthians, that all people and all creation are meant to be returned back into shalom, into a right relationship with Christ and with God. In both the Old and New Testament, we see examples of God explaining different types of calling, that there are some people have an assignment or a task, a role, some sort of mission and a unique calling that they have been given. In Ephesians 4, Paul says this, that we should maintain unity amongst the body of believers, that we should engage our gifts for the benefit of the church, that Ephesians says this in 11, that the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature personhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, held by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All of us are humbled before God's holiness. We are all recipients of the good grace that God has given us and to represent him in the doing his work on this earth. And then in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, we who are God's handiwork creating Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us. God alone makes us ready for the calling that God puts in our lives. God alone is responsible for asking us to participate in whatever it is that he has separated us out to be a part of and is our privilege to be those who can answer that. And Pastor Ken, God has fashioned you. He has gifted you. He has called you. He has set you apart for a good work that is specific to you here on this earth. And he needs you to walk in obedience to that. Now we're excited that God has called you to be a part of the pastoral staff here at Common Ground Northeast and to lead into Shepherd, to teach and to equip. As I speak these, I want to invite others in this room to affirm this with him. I'm going to ask specific people to maybe stand and stretch out their hand, and then the rest of us will stretch out our hand as well. If you in here are a close friend of Pastor Rush, a family member, maybe you're an elder of Common Ground Northeast or a pastor on staff at Common Ground Northeast, would you please just stand up and stretch out your hand towards Lori and Pastor Ken? As I ask each of these, Pastor Ken, would you respond, if you are willing, with God's help, I will. Do you promise to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ all of your life? With God's help, help, I will. Do you promise to faithfully serve the church in the capacity God has called you to those God has placed under your care? With God's help, I will. Do you promise to shepherd God's people in the capacity God has called with integrity, authenticity, and love? With God's help, I will. And do you promise to use your gifts to the best of your ability as the Holy Spirit empowers you? With God's help, I will. Amen. Would the rest of you stand up as I make a charge to our community together? Hebrews 13, 17 says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account, 
Do this that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So church, as we install Pastor Ken Rush into this position, I want us to affirm him today that he has been called into this position by stating the same, with God's help we will. Let me read out the commitments we are making to him. Will you trust God's provision and open yourselves fully to Pastor Ken? With God's help we will. When he leads, will you trust God through his discipleship? When he guides and casts vision, will you seek his wisdom and perspective as the Holy Spirit enables? With God's help, we will. When he does new things, may we support him and enable him. Will we be willing to to uplift him as a shepherd so that he would be filled with joy? With God's help, we will. And will you commit to praying for him and his family, lifting them up to God and asking for the Lord's anointing to constantly be upon him? With God's help, we will. Amen. You may have a seat. That's got to be that guitar. Always doing it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Pastor Rush, uh, we recognize this stage in your calling. We offer you our support as a community and body of believers. At times, leadership is difficult, but rest knowing, as we have just stated, that God is with you, that we are with you, and that the saints throughout history have walked this road before you and paved that ground already. It is my great honor today, as, a, as an elder and as the lead pastor of Common Ground Northeast, to install Pastor Ken Rush as our associate pastor to the work of ministry that God has called him to here at Common Ground Northeast. Amen. Amen. (laughs) I did want to leave some room for you to address the congregation. Let me grab the microphone for you. Thank you and praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. This is the day that the Lord has made. We're shouting, we're rejoicing. It makes me feel at home. Let's give God the best praise where mm. we can find. Amen. I'm going to be brief because uh, I'm overwhelmed, but this has been a 35 year journey for me. Um, Eric and I, Pastor Eric and I agree that among other things, one of the things that keeps us apart are preferences and principalities. Hmm. Our style, what we prefer, and the enemy that knows if we could ever get beyond it, what we could be. Preferences and principalities So what is more powerful than preference and principality? We believe it's prophecy. 35 years ago, when you catch me in the hallway, ask me, because I don't have time to tell you the whole story. I met a man. He was white. I thought he was racist. I thought he meant me harm. He did not. He gave me some money in a very perilous situation that I was in. And then he called me brother. 
It is the single most impactful thing that ever happened in my life. And then I didn't need the money. I sat there and cried. And the Spirit of the Lord said to me, you were wrong about him. But everything I had learned to that point, I just knew that I was right about him. And God said to me, I've called you to love everybody. That was in a diner. I guess I am telling the story. <laughs> I was in a diner. <laughs> that was in a Waffle House at 11 o'clock at night in Terre Haute, Indiana, while I was waiting on the bus to come back to Indianapolis. But that was 35 years ago. It changed my life. I knew that there was a truth that God had. But when I left Indiana State, I married a black woman. I had black kids. I lived in a black community. I went to a black church. I never had a lot of time to come back and, f and do what that man told me that night. But today I'm here because of him. And I know that he is here as well because he's in you. So there's a truth, right? It's God's truth. It's not often recognized. It's not lived out. But I know it. And I've come here to help us all fulfill it and to fulfill it in my own life as well. So that's why I think that I am here. Amen. Well, before we end in prayer, um, the, just as, as we were talking, um, uh, uh, in the midst of this, there's been like a communal negotiation too. And I just wanted to say as a pastor of Common Ground Northeast, to those who are here with the Healing Place and in attendance and watching online, we don't just want to invite you to be a part of our church. We want to extend the hand of fellowship to you today. This is our, our, our vision to see, as MLK said, the beloved community come to fruition in the context of our church. We don't want you just to be a part of our church community. We want you to have a voice in shaping our community moving forward. We want to have partnership in, in, in what the, whatever God has for us in the kingdom moving forward so that we could see what happens in Revelation 7-9. John describes, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb of God, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I don't believe this is an easy endeavor, but I know for a fact that Common Ground Northeast cannot do it alone, and we need you to help out with that. And so we want to invite you to the greatest degree that we can to come and take ownership here in this place, be a part of shaping who our church is as we walk into the future together. I want to finalize our time here and just pray those same prayers, those verses over us today, but specifically over Pastor Ken and Lori today. Let us go to God in prayer. I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder, Lori. Come around here. So, Heavenly Father, we ask for you uh, to anoint Ken and Lori and their influence that you have given them here on this earth, Lord. I just ask, God, that you would equip Ken, give him vision, purpose, give him drive to want to see us come together in a new way that, that you say, God, your kingdom looks like new wine. It looks like a new patch of cloth. 
And then at times, God, we have to walk away from what it was so that we can step into whatever's new. So Lord, give him words to speak in that moment. Father, make us a church of new wineskins, of new cloth. God, let us grow together, honoring our histories together, but also, Lord, stepping into a fresh, new something that is beloved, something that is a new kind of community that looks like the kingdom, Lord. Father, I pray for your blessing, your anointing on Pastor Ken and Lori in their marriage. I pray for it over their family, and I pray for it over whatever ministry you have in front of them, however it works itself out, Lord. Thank you, Father, for this moment in time. Make us new. God, make us the kingdom of heaven. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks. Amen. Amen. Give him a hand, y'all. Yeah. I have a feeling next time Lori might be dropping that mic at some point, so right there. Well, um, with no further ado, the way that we tend to celebrate here, gets us going here at Common Ground Northeast, is we serve up some donuts for all to partake in. <laughs> so I want to continue the celebration. Um, this is one thing I want to remind us of. We tend to take a good bit of time, meet and greet during this, right? That's what we're here for. Grab a donut, say hey to someone, but do know that there is an online community that's just sitting there waiting for us during this time. So grab your donuts, come sit. I'll start the sermon here in about a couple minutes, um, but as we're... As as we're doing it, feel free to stand up, say hello to someone that's new around you, introduce yourself, and grab some donuts here in the back. We do have children in the service with us today, just in case you're wondering about that. We're not dismissing kids, um, so you all are welcome in here as a part of our community today, too. Um, and uh, go ahead and grab some donuts. We'll see you in about two minutes. All right, all right. Got a lot of chat. Check, check. I might be hot. Hello, hello. Let's go ahead and have a seat with your donut in hand. Maybe a fresh cup of coffee. Hey, thanks for those of you who are watching us online. We're glad to have you. I hope you're celebrating with emojis in the chat right now as we speak. Donut emojis don't quite do it. Amen. Amen. Well, um, we're safely inside of December and uh, in, inside of the season of Christmas, so I'm going to start off just by saying Merry Christmas. Is it too early for that? No. All right. Good. I got full confirmation. We got the decorations up. Technically, this is week two of Advent if you follow the liturgical calendar. But just wanted to say Merry Christmas. Each year, the staff and I, we kind of put our heads together and there's a, a couple of elders who are teaching elders that help contribute to this. Um, as well, we try to think like, what's a, what's a new creative way that we can come at the birth narrative, the Christmas story, that kind of gives it a freshness. And sometimes you just straight up read it for what it is, and that's enough at times. But 
every once in a while we try to come at it from a different angle and give a theme to it to help freshen it up. And so this year, what we decided to do was a presentation that has actually already happened at Common Ground Northeast before. A few years ago, actually, I think the year before I arrived, um, we did a series in Advent that we called the Women of Advent. And so we are going to do part two of that, the Women of Advent part two. Now, if you're wondering like I am, I was kind of thinking that the idea got thrown out there and I thought to myself, what, what other people could we uh, work ourselves into in this story? Like there's not that many female characters inside the direct story of Advent. You've got Elizabeth, you've got Mary, and then later on you have Anna, a prophetess that, that, that um, prophesies and sings a song over Jesus after he is born. And, and so they're like, well, where, where else is this? And as I was talking to Serena, who's one of our elders here, she was saying, well, we actually went into the genealogy and talked through some of the things out of Matthew. Oh, man, that's great. I didn't even consider that as a part of it. But then that started to bring our attention towards the different people inside of the different women inside of the genealogy and some of the things that they did. And then we started to think about some other birth narratives and are there connections with the birth narratives in the Old Testament and the New Testament that might be brought into this that are telling some aspect of the Advent story that we hadn't caught. And as I started to look more and more into it, it became a treasure trove of connections that were directly related to Jesus' birth. And so over the next couple of weeks, we want to celebrate the role of women as we celebrate the birth of Christ during the Christmas season. And the first woman that we want to highlight in this time inside of Scripture is the very first woman of Scripture. Now, this image that I'm about to show you, it struck me a few years ago. It was kind of floating around on social media. We happen to have one of them right now. Some of you may have seen this picture. Um, it's not very easy to see, and so we have another one up here. One of the things I want to recognize just straight up from the beginning is this is clearly not an ethnically accurate depiction of Mary and Eve, right? And I honestly wrestled with whether or not to use it, but what I saw here is another artist um, in, in uh, cooperation with the original artist who created this picture did this, kind of an icon, like a modern-day icon, and so it was a little bit more ethnically neutral. And so I want us to kind of focus on that, but knowing that this is the original depiction that was created by a woman. Her name is Sister Grace Remington of the Cistercian Sisters of the Mississippi Abbey. They specialize in making chocolates or car caramels or something like that. And you can go on and order those even today. But they also, this picture that was given as a devotional kind of idea um, was created by one of the women who is a part of this and it went viral. And so, again, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but what I want us to do is to kind of think about the ways in which these two unlikely characters, Mary and Eve, can be brought together to understand this relationship and what's happening theologically behind the scenes. And so I want to draw your attention to just a couple of things in this image. In this one, you see it on the ground there, but in this one, Eve is holding an apple, and it's got one bite representing the fruit. She is draped in her own hair. And the second thing is that Mary is comforting Eve in this picture in two ways. One hand is on her face, and the other hand is holding Eve's hand to her pregnant belly. Third, there is a serpent on the ground, and the serpent is wrapped around Eve's foot. But fourth, there is a head underneath the foot of Mary because the serpent's head is being crushed under her foot. Now, this reminds me of a very powerful piece of Scripture. Just after sin enters the Garden of Eden, 
Turn to Genesis 3 with me, if you would. Genesis 3, verses 13 through 15. I want to read this to you today. Genesis 3, 13, it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now listen to verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, God's word comes in the midst of describing a justified consequence. But in this verse, God gives this kind of reversal, this unexpected, tiny deliverance of a message, a compassionate response that says in the midst of the destruction that unfolds due to the decisions that were made due to the disobedience of Adam and Eve in this garden, God gives a prophetic glimmer. God gives just this tiny seed of hope sown out that resounds over and over in Scripture, as you're going to see today. I want to read that last part once again. And I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is what I want you to know. That last verse is good news. All right, if you, if you didn't catch that in there, that verse is good news. In fact, theologians throughout history have called this the proto-evangelium, which is just a fancy Latin term for first gospel. Proto means first, evangelium means gospel. It literally means the very first gospel. And this is the moment, the good news, the very first time the good news on the other side of the rebellion, on the other side of the consequence, is preached out that, that the serpent, that the enemy does not have the final say in all of the matters that take place today. The serpent doesn't win inside of the end. Is that good news for anyone in this room? And so in God's kindness, this hope is spoken directly after the offense is committed. Now I want to stop and dwell on that just real quick. Because in God's kindness, in his compassion, he realizes we really struggle not to embrace the voice of the enemy in our life. And so as soon as the offense is committed, he drops in the good news. I know you're not going to be able to sit with this very long. Stop and dwell on that, that goodness of God. Stop and dwell on that kindness of who God is. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember in our darkest moment. In our time of difficulty, in our moment of disobedience, when we've given in the towel, even on ourselves, God's voice is quick to jump in there and say, no, 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 the enemy doesn't get the final say in this moment. This is not where it ends. How often do we hold on to the damaging shame or scars of our offenses and the death that results from our own sin, consequences that we deserve, but we allow the enemy to then take those things, define our identity with those things? cause us to base our future decisions off of those things. And in the midst of it, God is saying in his kindness, no, 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 it, I'm going to speak hope where hopelessness was. I'm going to speak redemption where there was once fallenness. I'm going to speak victory when you were not victorious in this moment. And so God kindly says, let me give you the definition of your identity. 
Let me give you the future that moves towards the good plans that I have prepared for you in advance. Let me turn graves, as the song says, into gardens. This is not just like bringing back what was lost, but taking it and elevating it even higher into a place of honor, and we're going to see that play out today. So this is Eve's, this, sorry, this is God's act of kindness to Eve. A prophetic word of God reveals the intention of God to disentangle the woman's failure so that through a woman, this salvation would be delivered and she would be elevated into a position of honor. Now, um, one commentator, Deb Gregory, describes this by saying, although she had colluded with the serpent, God promised to flip that around and make them mortal enemies. He ordained that it would be a woman who would cooperate with him, who would participate with God in defeating the serpent. All this declared to Eve right on the heels of her disobedience. And I love the final line as she spoke. She said, thanks be to God. Now, since we have the advantage of the future perspective, we get to look back and we know the fulfillment of these things. We have to consider, though, if we step into this story, Eve's point of view in this moment. Because it's possible that she thought that the fulfillment of this message would be in her immediate children. She may have wondered, which of my sons is going to bring salvation? Do you remember the story of her sons, though? Like you even see it, Eve exclaims at the birth of Cain, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Perhaps she supposes that this, her firstborn, is the seed of her which will strike the head of the serpent, but... It turns out that he is also infected with sin. He's a murderer. And her other son, Abel, is the victim of Cain's violence. And so neither becomes the fulfillment of these things. Neither of them delivered salvation, so humanity had to wait for another fulfillment of this prophecy. And in the midst of it, enmity begins to increase. It begins to build, right? Inside of the scripture, we see this this tension being created that crescendos and continues to build and points us towards a future son and a future victory, one that is still to come, will come in and step into this to deliver the blow that would put an end to the serpentine empire that was started in the Garden of Eden. Now, a theologian named Irenaeus was an, he's an early theologian in 180. He, he was a, 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 a minister in what is now modern-day Turkey, possibly the first ever leader to connect this idea of Eve uh, in the garden and, and this verse uh, to Mary inside of the Gospels. So in 100 AD, he said this, and I love the imagery, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by the obedience of Mary. What the virgin Eve bound by her unbelief the Virgin Mary loosened by her faith. But again, as far as Eve can tell, as far as Eve can see, as far as her perspective can view, the knot is not any looser than it was when it got tied in the first place. It is pulled tight, never to be loosed. The realization of her nakedness is exposed as she and Adam are trying to hide from God inside of the garden. Death is surrounding them as one son enacts murder against the other and both are gone. So much is lost and there is despair. But what Eve does have in this moment is the ability to hold on to that prophetic kindness that God spoke to her that one day this whole thing would be undone. 
And so the question is constantly, continually, from her perspective, but when? Who? Who? By who? Who is going to undo this? And so we, we, we stand right now in, in this moment, in this narrative, like in this in-between stage that the promise has been given, but it hasn't been fulfilled. The fullness of it hasn't been completed. And I love how, again, Deb Gregory comments. She said, even the other mothers of Israel, let me read that again, Eve and the other mothers of Israel didn't know who this woman would be, but they held on to the promise and they waited in expectation for a woman who would participate with God in that work of salvation. And many women stepped forward in expectancy to look darkness in the eye with the hope of crushing that serpent. And through their obedience, these women tugged and they pulled at the nut of Eve's disobedience. So she's not just describing this arbitrary collection of women throughout Israel's history. It's not just like we're going to pinpoint different people and hope that it connects, but we actually see that the threads of this knot are tied from Mary back to Eve, and in both of these situations, all along the way, there is a prophetic feminine tradition that is loosing it and loosing it and participating with God. And you can see it all along the way. And so we get propelled into this generational idea of women undoing the curse and the mothers of Israel that will operate in a tradition of the proto-evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel. So who dared to defy serpent regimes? who believed and acted on the possibility that they were the one who is going to bring salvation to God's people. And I would say in some way, all of them participated in it. Dr. Timothy George said this, Mary appears in the infancy narratives as the culmination of a prophetic lineage of pious mothers. Sarah, Rachel, or Rachel, Hannah, together with Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, appear in the Mathen, uh, that's just the Matthew genealogy. I don't know how they're saying it here. Mathenian genealogy. There is a sense in which any of them could have been the mother of the Messiah. And on Christmas Eve, we are going to read Mary's song of triumph called the Magnificat. But before we get there, I want to honor the fact that throughout generations of Israel, nobody knew but everyone expected, could it be this generation? Could it be this generation? Could it be this generation Nobody knew exactly which woman it would be. Is it her? Is it this woman? Is it this act of obedience? Is it this one? Or is it her? Or is it her? Is it she that bore the mantle of bravery? And some of them even sang songs of victory on the other side, songs of triumph of God. And so I want to point out three women today before we close. There are three women in particular that not only said yes to God, but proclaimed trust through songs of deliverance. In Exodus, Miriam aids in the deliverance of the Hebrews. She denies Pharaoh's serpentine reign so that he did not destroy all of God's people. And later, she leads the people in worship. Exodus 15 says this, When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And Miriam leads the people in a song of triumph. Second, we look at Deborah. 
Israel's leader at the time. And in Judges 4, 6 through 9, she sent, it says this, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to the mountain Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Deborah Deborah went back with Barak to Kadesh. And so the war, part, they partake in this war. This battle ensues. The Israelites begin to win the war. And what happens? The leader of the opposition, Sisera, flees on foot and he tries to hide into a tent of a woman. Well, Judges 4 continues. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I am thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Anyone else feel like she kind of tucked him in? (laughs) Gave him a milk sippy before bedtime? I won't go too far into that. Sorry. Verse 20. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple and into the ground, and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her. And there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. Now, what I want you to do is to catch the prophetic imagery that took place. And I want to read one more time from Deb Gregory. She points out that Jael crushed his head with a tent peg. Jael looked darkness square in the eyes as he slithered into her tent. And under her rug, she arose and participated in the work of salvation. Third, Hannah. While the priests were there exploiting the people and in the midst of a time when Israel had walked away from God, her song reveals a prophetic expectancy that he would flip it around and save Israel instead. So God gives her a son and Hannah gives that son back to God. She sings a triumphant song about how salvation comes from God and Amanda Miller adds this, These three women, singing women, arise during states of liminality in Israel. All of them are at key transition points in Israel's historical and political experience. And Mary's song is at the center of Israel's transition into the inbreaking of God's reign into the world. As you look back, and I want to encourage you, go read the songs, because we don't have time to read each one. Read the songs of these women and and the song of victory that they present forth because when we read Mary's Magnificat, it is going to mean something completely different to you, I promise. I want to point out that none of these women were surprise participants of the work of salvation. This wasn't an accident. It is the work of women engaging in a prophesied tradition of expectant women. 
looking out, wondering who would, it would be, wondering where they could participate, who would be willing to say yes to God, to defy the serpent's empire whenever and wherever it arose, even if it was dangerous for them to do that. And we see a tradition through Israel's history of women rising up, connecting themselves to this tradition, undoing that not one string at a time until we point, until we get to where it's pointing to Mary. It says this, though they were not the final fulfillment of the prophecy, each one acted as a partial fulfillment, keeping history on course towards the story and the song of young Mary, God's vessel of salvation into the world, giving birth through humble means in Bethlehem, but being in the first century the fulfillment of she who would produce the light of the world, the Messiah. Now, these women are heroes of the faith. They deserve to be recognized for their contribution to bring salvation to this earth. Their hope should inspire us to believe today. Their bravery resounds like an echo in the chambers of the historic Christian tradition that should inspire us even today. And so I want to ask yourself, where do you see yourself in this story? What hope are you meant to believe in today that you have given up on? Maybe there's something going on in your own life that you have walked away from or just thrown in the towel, and this is the moment that says, no, there's a prophetic glimmer of hope that God says the enemy doesn't get the last word in your situation. And so if you're living in that, this is a moment to break that and to say, no, that's not who gets to shape me. That's not who gets to tell me where my future is heading. I want to pull that even further. Where are you called to resist the enemy in your life? If James 4, 7 through 8, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Why is the enemy afraid? Because he's read it. He knows the proto-evangelion. His head is going to get crushed. His end is already determined. And maybe you forgot that power inside of you and God is saying, look, not just don't give up hope, but it's time to resist this enemy and put a stop to it today. Let's take it one step further. What evil are you meant to look directly in the face of and resist so that you can proclaim that the reign of the serpent king is over in this place? Is it, in the, is it in the trenches of a workplace scenario? Is it in a, a, a dinner <laughs> over Thanksgiving with your family? Is it in the moment when you're standing in a ballot box trying to figure out what you're going to do with your vote? Is it in the midst of how you interact with public on a day-to-day basis? Where is it that God has pointed out there is a serpent reign in this place? And you are called to resist and to push back and to not be quiet, but to step into that situation with the bravery of Jael, who put a tent stake through the head of the serpent and crushed it. As we finish today, this is is what I want us to do. I I want to encourage us that we would carry the tradition of this prophetic feminine um, uh, prophecy into the future. And so if you are a woman here today, would you be so encouraged that there is a legacy of women behind you who have stood in this gap, who stood against the odds, who stepped into that moment, who took the brave act instead of shying away when you saw over and over in some of these myths where others failed to do so. They undid that knot. 
And we see the ultimate victory as we look towards Mary and the birth of King Jesus. Where is resistance appropriate? Where is God's voice meant to be heard above all else? Where are we meant to trust that the head of the serpent is going to be crushed and the children of God's inheritance will step in with power and freedom? I want to read to you. I took a quick picture of it as we finalize today. The year after this was put together, I keep on calling it a painting, but it's like a Colored pencils, I think. Um, This picture was created. It was meant to be an icon. Another sister in that same group of people wrote a poem of it. And I want to read that poem to you today. This is one of the sisters of the Mississippi Abbey. She said, My mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed. Do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God has brought us to a new day. See, I am with child, through whom all will be reconciled. O Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever, life without end. With those words still left in the air, let us pray together. So Lord, I pray that you would allow us to appropriately honor women in the context of a society that has failed to do so? Would we recognize the contribution of the gospel message that echoed prophetically throughout Israel's history and still has that echo happening today? So Lord, over the next few weeks as we recognize these women of Advent, Would you inspire us? Would you encourage us? Would we see heroes in places that maybe were not where we thought to look before, but they've always been there? So God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear that the redemption of all things has come. Father, we would step into this moment and participate in that redemption story to end the serpent's empire on earth today. Thank you, Father. We ask for these things right now in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen.